Hello, bitch, and welcome to my podcast. My name is Katie, and welcome back to my podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Serial Killers and Narcissists. Now, today's case and psychological analysis is on Ivan Milat. Yes, mm-hmm, we're pumping out all the heavy hitters. Now, Ivan Milat, okay, he is Australia's most notorious serial killer, and he is known globally as the backpacker murderer. And low-key, he's actually one of my favorites. Um, so everyone in Australia knows Ivan Milat. He is a household name. And although he is a piece of shit, obviously, I think we all have a bit of a laugh whenever we think or talk about Ivan Malad, and it's not because of the murders, obviously, because they're sad and tragic, and obviously our hearts go out to the victims of the families. But I think it's just Ivan himself, and especially the shit he was pulling in jail, because I feel like a lot of us were a bit older when we heard about it on the news. And Ivan is just kind of like the Charles Manson equivalent, like just a complete whack job, just off with the fairies. So we're going to be talking about him today, and I'm looking forward to it. Now let's talk about Ivan Malad. So he is very notorious because he was charming, muscular, attractive, and just your typical Aussie bloke. But behind this disguise, Ivan Milat was a narcissist. Mm-hmm. He was manipulative and he was a violent psychopathic serial killer who kidnapped, assaulted, tortured, and murdered at least seven young men and women between 1989 and 1993. Now, I feel like with all these serial killers, they're all the damn same. So when it came time to Ivan being accused and charged with murder, his family and friends were were shocked. They could not believe it. They were like, not our Ivan. Have they got the wrong person? But they were in complete disbelief because the thing with Ivan, all of his family and friends knew about his criminal record from when he was younger. And his criminal record was only for uh, petty crimes and theft. So that was kind of in the past. So for them to be learning that he could potentially be a serial killer, this was something that they just could not accept. Ivan's mother, his siblings, his relatives, they all refused to believe from the very beginning that Ivan was the person responsible for the backpacker murders. Despite all the physical evidence, despite his subsequent conviction, despite his incarceration, they did not believe it. Ivan's mother said in an interview shortly after his arrest, quote, but if Ivan's innocent, then they'll go and arrest Richard. They're both innocent. They were both living here when those murders were meant to happen. I did all their washing. There was no blood. They're good boys. End quote. Ivan's sister-in-law, Caroline, she said in an interview, quote, We believe that Ivan was framed. We are not convinced that the belongings found in Ivan's home belonged to the backpacker victims. We are all convinced that they were put there by the police. End quote. Ivan's brother, Richard Millat, he said in an interview, quote, I have no doubt that Ivan is innocent. I don't think he did it or had anything to do with it. He's just not that type of person. End quote. All of Ivan Millat's family members 
members defended Ivan's innocence from the very beginning. And I think it's because Ivan came across as very ordinary. You know, he was very charming and attractive and he was a hard worker who worked on the roads and they respected him for that. But it's also because he never confessed. And I think for a lot of the family members, they would say that they would believe in Ivan until the actual confessions came out of his mouth, but they never did. So Ivan never confessed. The police did try to do a deathbed confession, but Ivan was not cooperative, but we still know what he did anyway. So let's get into the story, shall we? Ivan Milat was born in Guildford, New South Wales, Australia, on the 27th of December, 1944. So Ivan is a Capricorn, and I actually don't know any Capricorns, but I personally do have a lot of Earth in my chart. Like my moon is in Capricorn, and I had to look this up on my CoStar app. Um, and it, my moon in Capricorn basically means that I'm supposed to be responsible, serious, and rational, but I cannot say the same about Malad. Ivan Malad was the fifth child born to Stephen and Margaret Malad. So Ivan's father, Stephen, he was born and raised in Croatia and came to Australia where he settled in Parramatta. Um, when Stephen was 32 years old, that's when he met an Australian girl and her name was Margaret. But um, Margaret was 14 years old at the time. So a 32-year-old and a 14-year-old. I guess no one at the time really questioned how inappropriate that would be for a 32-year-old to be having sex with a minor. But I guess this was a different time back then, so I can't really comment on what was socially acceptable. But the families, undeterred, allowed the two to marry two years later when Margaret was 16. So they started a family straight away, and Margaret was very religious. So she didn't believe in birth control, and she was just pumping out the kids. So they ended up having 14 children together. They had 10 boys and four girls. So all the kids, including Ivan, would be half Croatian and half Australian. But sadly, Ivan's family was very poor. So they definitely came from a low socioeconomic background. And for most of Ivan's younger years, Ivan would live in decrepit houses in rural areas of New South Wales. So Ivan first lived in a small weatherboard cottage with a dirt floor in Bosley Park, where he shared a small bedroom with three of his siblings. Then the family moved several times from Bosley Park to Rossmore to Chester Hill to Moorbank. And when they lived in Moorbank, by the way, they actually lived in a shed, like a fucking shed. <laughs> and all the kids slept on a mattress. So that's crazy. And I don't think they had all 14 kids at this point, but still that's not ideal for a growing family. But they eventually settled in Guildford, which is near Liverpool. So shout out to 2170. Now just to pause for a minute because 14 kids and two parents is a really large household. And there was a psychiatrist, his name was Dr. Milton, and he commented on this situation. And he said, quote, a family like Malatz is often short on affection because the parents just don't have enough to go around. End quote. And I think we've seen this theme in a lot of serial killers, that something goes wrong in their childhood, in their formative years, where there's a lack of attention, there's a lack of affection and emotional connection between the parent and child. And there's some neglect that usually leads to behavioral issues in the child. And then this leads to the likelihood of a personality disorder forming. So as we've discussed in my earlier episodes, the personality 
disorders are typically narcissistic personality disorder and antisocial personality disorder. And Ivan, by the way, he has both. So unfortunately for Ivan, his home was the definition of dysfunctional. Unfortunately, there was a lot of domestic violence in the home. So Ivan's father, Stephen, he was a very bad man. Stephen was described as a heavy alcoholic, had an explosive temper and was extremely abusive and violent. So Stephen brutally abused all the children in the home. He would beat and belt his kids violently, sometimes to the point of rendering them unconscious. He would just impulsively hit his kids whenever he was angry or if the kids were in trouble for something, he would just suddenly whack them across the back of their head or he would just grab the closest object and beat them with it. And it was reported that Stephen would sometimes hit his children with a shovel. Stephen was also very tough and he had a very strict way of parenting the kids. So he was unapologetically demanding and he would order the kids around to tell them what to do. And the thing with him was that he really prioritized hard work above everything else. And he never showed any love and affection to the children. So Stephen would force the kids to work hard on the property from a young age. So the Malat family actually ran a market garden business where they grew and sold tomatoes. Um, And he would make the kids do all the manual labor and he would just work them really hard between school. But like I said, Stephen was not affectionate to the children. So one of the brothers, Boris Malat, he said in an interview that his father, quote, never played with us. I remember that he took us to Manly once, but he never showed any love to the kids. End quote. And Stephen, he would also beat his wife, Margaret, as well. And he would do this in front of the kids. So Boris reported in an interview that his mother was struck at least once a week by his father. And he just sounds like the most vile fucking human being. He was just a downright abuser and a piece of shit. But Ivan's mother, Margaret, she was also abusive to the children as well. So Margaret would often hit the kids to discipline them. But whenever Stephen took it too far and actually hurt the kids very badly, she would then become the complete opposite to Stephen. And she would overcompensate and baby them, which I mean, would have been very confusing for the kids because on one hand, they're receiving punishment punishment and discipline in the most extreme way. But then they're being rewarded by Margaret because she's suddenly giving them this overwhelming love that they are only experiencing at these times. So it would have been really confusing for a child to know how to take being disciplined. And Ivan, well, he was reportedly Margaret's favorite. So Ivan was a mommy's boy and aren't they all? So Margaret would constantly turn a blind eye to all of Ivan's bad behavior his entire life and she essentially enabled him which is so common with abusive men their mums they're just fucking cooked they think that their son can do no wrong okay like just look at Jason Voorhees and his mother Google image it. You'll see what I'm talking about. But anyway, the entire Malat household was just out of control. There was no boundaries, no consistent parenting and guidance, and there was extreme violence between all of the family members. So obviously there was violent fighting between the parents and the children because the kids would be beaten all the time. There was violent fighting between the parents because Margaret was constantly physically assaulted by her husband. And there was also violent fighting between the children themselves. So when the brothers would fight, they were very aggressive 
aggressive and violent with each other and it was reported that when they would fight they would throw bricks and hammers at each other. But all the boys loved their knives and they loved their guns. So as kids the boys actually grew up playing with knives and if we remember from a previous episode playing with knives at a young age is a huge indication in psychology that the child is a victim of physical abuse or is witnessing violence in the home. And we know this is happening in the Malat household. And the boys also grew up playing with guns. And one of the brothers reported that he actually got his first gun at five. Like a five-year-old playing with a freaking gun. So as young boys, they would play cowboys and Indians, but with real guns. So they would taunt each other and be like, I'm going to shoot you, I'm going to shoot you, and then actually shoot them with a real gun. And some of the brothers reported that they actually did get shot. And one of them got shot in the head. And just a side note, because we are talking about guns and we are talking about the Malat family with their guns. When John Howard officially banned guns in Australia in 1996... I'm just going to give you a bit of Australian history in case you forgot. But basically what happened was after the Port Arthur massacre, John Howard introduced this buyback scheme where people would return their guns and then they would get money from the government. And it was largely successful. They got so many guns back and they destroyed all of them. Like John Howard, he's actually one of my favorite Australian prime ministers, by the way. But the Malad family... They refused to participate. The boys never handed in any of their guns. They were very anti this John Howard scheme and they referred to John Howard as a Nazi. So you can just draw whatever inference you want from that one. And Ivan, well, he loved his guns and knives. So from a young age, Ivan would enjoy collecting knives and guns. And Ivan was obsessed with shooting and his favorite pastime was target practice. But as the psychopath he is, he would kill animals. So trigger warning, I'm going to be mentioning animal abuse. So Ivan would shoot cats for fun. And Ivan's ex-wife, Karen, she later said in an interview that Ivan was quote-unquote gun crazy and would shoot kangaroos for fun. It was also reported by one of his brothers that one time Ivan cut a dog in half with a machete. So as Ivan grew up and would go on to attend high school, he actually went to Liverpool Patrician Brothers High School and Ivan was described as a good-looking, muscular boy who took great care of his appearance. He was athletic and really into sports and he played cricket and football in school. But Ivan was described as a bit of a loner. He was difficult to discipline and he would often skip school. So Ivan also had a bit of an aggressive side and he would display outbursts of violence and he would just beat up kids at school. So Ivan would go on to drop out after year eight when he was 15 years old and he left school and started to work on a farm welding chicken cages in Austral. But all the Malat kids were pretty much the same. They didn't really go to school. They would skip school and they all left at a young age to go out to go to work but when they left school they were free they did whatever they wanted without any parental guidance they went absolutely wild they were reckless and they acted like a bit of a gang just like animal kingdom i'm kidding but the boys were known as troublemakers in the community who regularly got in trouble with police and i saw in an interview that ivan's mother would be like 
that was normal. Your police would come around all the time and they'd be looking for one of the boys, but I would just say they weren't home. So when Ivan left school, this is when he started his colourful criminal history. So the best way to describe Ivan Milat, I think, is just your typical delinquent who's just in and out of prison from a young age. So we're going to start in 1961, and that's also the year my dad was born. <laughs> um, so Ivan was 17 years old, and he was convicted of theft after a break-in and enter into a home. So he was subsequently sentenced to six months at Mount Penang Juvenile Institution. Then in 1964, when Ivan was 20 years old, Ivan was convicted for theft again after he broke into a shop and he actually used an axe to chop over open a safe. Ivan was then sentenced to 18 months at Parramatta Jail. Then in 1965, and this was one month after his release from Parramatta Jail, Ivan was convicted of auto theft when he was caught driving a stolen vehicle. And then he was sent back to Parramatta Jail while he was awaiting his trial. And then he was sentenced the following year in 1966 to two years of community service. So while he was on these two years of community service, he was convicted again for accessory of car theft and was sentenced to three years imprisonment. So shortly after Ivan's release from jail in 1971, Ivan's crimes continued. But this time around, his crimes increased in severity and violence. So that same year, in 1971, when Ivan was just 27 years old, Ivan would go on to commit his first abduction and rape. So trigger warning, we're going to be talking about a sexual assault case now. On the 10th of April 1971, Ivan offered a lift to two 18-year-old girls, Margaret Patterson and Greta. Now, Greta's not her real name. Um, it was a pseudonym that was used in court, so her identity has been sealed. So these two girls were traveling from Liverpool to Canberra, and they were waiting out front of Liverpool train station, and they were looking to hitch a ride, and that's when Ivan came along in his Ford Falcon V8. So Ivan approached the girls, offered them a lift, and started driving to Canberra. But on the drive, Ivan pulled the car over on a dirt road in a secluded area near Goulburn, and he demanded to have sex with both of the girls. So Margaret and Greta obviously refused at first. They were both like, what the fuck? No. And then Ivan pulled out two knives from underneath the front driver's seat and pointed it, like pointed each knife towards the girls and said, quote, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to kill the both of you. You won't scream when I cut your throats, will you? Either one of you has to have sex with me or I'll kill you both, end quote. So both the girls pleaded. They were crying and begging, asking for Ivan to let them go. They were telling him that he could just drive away and leave them on the side of the road. And Greta, she actually tried to get out of the car because she was in the back seat, but Ivan grabbed her by the collar of her shirt and was like choking her. And he was refusing to let the girls go and told them that he was going to kill them if one of them didn't have sex with him. So Margaret, she was sitting in the front passenger seat and she agreed to have sex with Ivan. So Ivan disgustingly climbed on top of Margaret and proceeded to rape her at knife point. 
while he was raping Margaret, he was pointing the other knife at Greta, yelling at Greta to look out for passing vehicles. And this whole ordeal went on for two hours. So after the attack, Ivan drove to a nearby petrol station while Margaret and Greta were both still in the car. And when Ivan stopped the vehicle, that's when Greta asked if she could go inside the petrol station to go get a drink. And Ivan said yes. So once Greta walked into the petrol station, she told everyone straight away in a panic. She said she was being held by a man outside who just attacked them. So all these people from inside the petrol station came out and they surrounded Ivan's car like some crazy ass mob. And then Margaret, she got out of the car and that's when Ivan just took off. So the girls went to the police straight away and they reported the rape. And not long after, the police came across Ivan still driving in his Ford Falcon. And then they went to pull him over, but Ivan wasn't pulling over. So a car chase ensued. But then Ivan eventually pulled the car over and he was immediately arrested. So Ivan was subsequently charged with the rape of Margaret Patterson, but Ivan was released on bail. So as a free man, Ivan got back out there and he was subsequently charged with two counts of armed robbery and possession of a weapon in August 1971. But Ivan got bail again, which I really don't understand because he's an alleged rapist, he's robbing places with a damn gun, and he has a criminal record where he's a repeat offender and a complete danger to the community. But he was released on bail. Now, when Ivan was out on bail again, he pulled off a little magic trick and he faked his own death in order to avoid the rape and armed robbery charges. So what Ivan did, now this part of the story is just really nuts, but he drove out to the gap and he left his shoes there to fake his own suicide. So if you're not familiar with the gap, it sadly used to be this spot in Sydney where people would go and commit suicide. And now I think there's all these cameras and there's like a net there to prevent that from happening. But Ivan was successful in faking his own suicide and he fled New South Wales. So he jumped around from state to state. So Ivan first went to Queensland, then he went to Victoria, and then he flew from Victoria to New Zealand, where he lived in New Zealand for two years. What the fuck? So Ivan probably would have gotten away with this completely, but he actually came back to Australia in April 1974 because his mother Margaret had a heart attack and she was hospitalized. So Ivan went to go visit his mother at hospital at Prince Alfred and then he was arrested by police. He was actually arrested inside of his mother's hospital room and it was Boris, his brother, who dobbed him into police. So Boris hates Ivan, by the way, you're going to see why. So Ivan was arrested and he eventually went to trial in December of 1974 for the two separate matters. So he faced trial for the sexual assault charges for the attack on Margaret and Greta in April 1971 and for the armed robbery charges in August 1971. So let's talk about the sexual assault case first. So Ivan, like the rest of these scumbags, pled not guilty and he got a criminal defense lawyer straight away. So he acquired the services of James Marsden. And uh, James Marsden was a very prominent lawyer back in the day. He was the president of the Law Society. He was also a member of the New South Wales Police Board and he also ran for politics in 1973. So that's James. But this trial was absolute bullshit and a fucking disgrace. 
So Ivan was acquitted from the rape charges. So what happened was after the first day of the trial, Ivan looked super fucking guilty and the defense knew that they're probably going to lose and he was going to be found guilty 100%. So that night, James Marsden, the lawyer, he actually went out to a gay bar and he noticed that both of the girls were there. So Margaret and Greta were there at this gay bar. So the next day in court, James put forward an allegation that the two girls were lesbians. So at this time, it was the 70s, and I suppose everyone was very judgmental of people's sexual preferences. So James relied on this allegation, which was taboo in society, to attack the girl's credibility. So James, he's dead now, but anyway. But he brought into questioning the girl's sexuality, and he made this obscene argument that because the girls were apparent lesbians or alleged lesbians, wouldn't they want to have sex with Ivan? because he's a man. So when Margaret testified at trial, she said yes, she would have sex with a man and that she agreed to have sex with Ivan. But when Greta got in the box, she stuck to her story. She told the court, nah, Ivan forced us at knife point. He threatened to kill us and he's allegedly done this before. That's what he told us. And you're thinking, yep, this is making sense. You know, Greta's got it. She's going to bring it home for us. But James Marsden, he then argued that the girls were receiving psychiatric treatment and were taking prescription drugs. So he essentially called them lesbian drug addicts. I don't even know how to follow this trial. I just can't get my head around it because it's just such a backwards way of thinking. And the fact that the victims are being victim shamed and their character is being attacked when Ivan is the one on trial. But I guess this was the social prejudices at the time and James took advantage of this. So James actually later came out with a book and he said out of all of his years of practicing law, he felt ashamed of the way that he conducted this trial. And as a gay man himself, he regretted the emphasis that he placed on the girl's sexuality. And you know what, James? As you should. But basically, the main thing was because Margaret had testified that she agreed to have sex with Ivan and Greta's credibility was obviously shot out the fucking window, the defense argued that Margaret was consensual. So it was pretty much a slam dunk case. The jury agreed and they found Ivan not guilty and he was acquitted. Now, the second trial took place for the armed robbery charges in December 1974, but Ivan was acquitted due to a lack of evidence. So he got off everything, even after he fled the country, by the way. Like this guy just gets too many chances. But despite Ivan's despicable behavior, he never felt guilty and he was never remorseful for any of his actions. He was completely unaffected by his constant law-breaking and violent behavior. And more importantly, his family didn't seem to care. They found it normal and acceptable for someone to be in and out of prison so much and they completely turned a blind eye to the rape charges they were like nah Ivan's a good guy wrong place wrong time so everyone who knew Ivan like all his friends and family they would continue to describe Ivan as charming well-mannered and a charismatic gentleman who did well with the ladies so let's talk about these ladies so Ivan would later go on to have several girlfriends all at the same time 
Yeah, as we know with narcissists, they are inherently cheaters and they just can't help themselves. In 1975, when Ivan was 31 years old, Ivan met a woman and her name was Karen Duck. So if you remember Karen, she was one about the kangaroos. Um, so Karen was 16 years old at the time and she was pregnant with Ivan's cousin's baby. So Ivan stole his cousin's pregnant girlfriend. Um, Karen left her boyfriend at the time and started a relationship with Ivan and they got married in 1983 but their relationship was horrific um, Ivan was a fucking psychopath so Karen said that Ivan was obsessed with guns and it was just extreme she said that he would keep a gun in one of his boots when they went out to the movies so can you just imagine going to the movies with your boyfriend and he's packing a gun and you're just like wanting to enjoy your fucking chock talk? Karen said that Ivan would also have a gun underneath his car seat at all times and would also keep a friendly machete in his car. Karen also said that Ivan made himself a homemade leather holster for one of his guns and he would run around like a cowboy and he called himself Tex. But unfortunately, there was a lot of domestic violence. So Ivan was just your typical abuser, just like his daddy. And he was extremely controlling of Karen in the relationship. So Karen reported that she wasn't allowed to leave the house without Ivan's permission. And she had to show him grocery receipts to show that she went out for shopping when she said that she did. Now, just to insert my two little cents here. If you ever have to ask a man for permission to do something, you tell him to get the fuck out of here. And as we know, with abusive assholes, they are also physically abusive. So one time Karen had disagreed with Ivan in front of their friends at dinner, and he pulled her into the bedroom and pulled a gun from the bedside table and pointed it in Karen's face and said, if you ever embarrass me again, I'll fucking shoot you. So Karen left Ivan in 1987 due to domestic violence, and she actually left him when he was away out on a job so he was a truck driver at the time and he would drive trucks to Goulburn and Brisbane but when he came back after his job Karen was gone so what he did was he drove over to Karen's parents house and set their garage on fire and burnt it down yeah he's a fucking freak <laughs> and Karen officially divorced Ivan in 1989 but during their relationship Ivan was having another relationship with his brother's wife, Maureen. So Maureen was married to Ivan's brother, Walter, and Maureen and Ivan engaged in a one-year affair. But it was also during this time that Ivan was in another relationship with one of his other brother's wives, Marilyn. And this affair went on for 11 years behind his brother's back. So Marilyn was married to Ivan's brother, Boris. So can you see why Boris hates Ivan? It goes, it goes way back, okay? So Boris and Marilyn had a family and kids of their own, but Marilyn was cheating on her husband Boris with his brother Ivan. This whole incest vibe is just too much, and clearly there's a lack of boundaries where Ivan just does not respect his brothers, and he is having sex with his brother's wives, and that's just fucked up. Anyway, during this affair with Marilyn and Ivan, Marilyn fell pregnant. And Ivan was the father. So Boris knew this. Ivan knew this. The entire family knew this. And they accepted it. 
So Boris accepted it for what it was and he stayed married to Marilyn where he would raise his brothers and his wife's baby. Look, I don't know what's going on, okay? And it gets worse. It was also reported that Ivan was having sex with one of his sisters, Shirley Malat, <laughs> who he was living with at the time. Although this has never been confirmed by Ivan or Shirley, there was a lot of family members who said they were aware of this relationship at the time. But I think from everything we've talked about so far, Ivan has obvious characteristics of narcissistic personality disorder and antisocial personality disorder. Ivan clearly lacks empathy. He is insensitive towards the needs of others and has a huge ego. He never feels guilty or remorseful for any wrongdoing. He has a pattern of violence to people and animals. He is reckless and impulsive, and he thinks that he is above the law with his continued law-breaking activities. And all of these traits are consistent with someone who has narcissistic personality disorder and antisocial personality disorder. So let's talk about Ivan Milat, the serial killer. So we're first going to look at the average serial killer profile because Ivan Milat definitely meets this profile. So Ivan Milat was white male from low socioeconomic background. He was aged 45 to 49 years old when he committed the murders. Now, just thought I would mention, Ivan is a bit older than the average age of a serial killer because most serial killers fall in the age bracket of 20s and 30s. But I think we also do need to consider Ivan's criminal record because he does have a history and a pattern of violence, especially with the rape that occurred when he was 27. So I think that's just something to consider. Ivan also experienced abuse and trauma in his childhood. He is clearly a psychopath and he also was a chameleon to his environment where he was unsuspecting to the people that knew him and his victims. So now we're going to look at his MO. So Ivan would target white young men and women who were aged between 19 and 22 years old. These people were travelers in Sydney and were usually heading to Melbourne. Most of them were unfamiliar with Sydney, so his victims were typically foreign travelers from the UK or Germany, except for a couple of his victims who were Australians, but they all used hitchhiking as a mode of transport and they were all abducted from the Hume Highway in Liverpool, New South Wales. The pattern in the way that Ivan would operate is that Ivan would approach hitchhikers in public along the Hume Highway in a white Toyota Land. Land cruiser. He would introduce himself as Bill and he would be very friendly and charming and he would offer hitchhikers a lift to Melbourne. Once he had his victims in the car, he would keep up a guise of pretending to be providing them with transport, but instead he would be taking them to the Belangolo State Forest. So once he was approaching the forest, he would turn off from the Hume Highway on a dirt road. And this is when his demeanor would change completely. Ivan went from being really friendly and nice and charming to aggressive and violent. Ivan would pull out a gun or a knife from underneath the driver's seat and would force his victims to tie themselves up with cord or a rope. He would then walk his victims in front of him into the Belangolo State Forest, where he would come up behind them and stab them in the back. He would stab them in their spine, which would paralyze them completely. Once the victims were laying there helplessly, he would gag them, torture them by cutting them with his bowie knife, beat them and rape them. And this whole ordeal could sometimes last for hours or days because by paralyzing his victims, he would keep them alive and had complete control over what he did to them. Ivan would drag 
drag out the deaths of his victims by carrying out assaults for however long he wanted because they were paralyzed, which is very torturous in itself. Once he was done assaulting his victims, he would then murder them by either stabbing, beating, or shooting them to death. And once the person had sadly passed, Ivan would put their body face down on the ground with their hands behind their back. He would then build a pyramid on their back made out of sticks and ferns in an X shape. All of Ivan's victims were found in Belangelo State Forest and they all had a similar pattern of injuries. All of the victims had stab wounds to the back, specifically to the spine, which I mentioned would have paralyzed the victim but not killing them. They also had stab wounds to their chest. They were either shot in the head or bludgeoned to death. There was one victim though who was decapitated and their head was cut off with a machete. But all of the bodies indicated that Ivan's victims did not die instantly from their injuries and they all had been tortured during the entire attack. The crime scenes of the bodies were also very similar, so the crime scenes would usually include a small makeshift fire pit that was built by the killer, indicating that the killer spent time with the victims either before, during, or after death. Now, before we talk about the murders, I should explain Belangelo State Forest a little bit, because this is where the murders were committed, and this is where the bodies were left and later recovered. So, Belangelo State Forest, is a large, dense forest located halfway between Sydney and Canberra. The forest is 3,800 hectares, which is equivalent to 93,900 acres. And just to kind of give you some idea and reference, Central Park in New York is 850 acres. So 850 versus almost 94,000 so Belangelo State Forest is a really large area. I also Google mapped it, um, obviously. <laughs> and Belangelo State Forest is about one hour drive from Liverpool. And this is the location where the travelers were being picked up. So pretty much you go straight down the Hume Highway and the Hume Highway is the main link from Sydney to Melbourne. And the surrounding suburbs that I recognized were Barrel and Mittagong. And Mittagong is really far. Well, it's far for me. <laughs> Also, the Belangelo State Forest was and still is now sometimes used by locals and travelers for camping, but it's mainly known as the place where the murders occurred. But the thing about this forest is that because it's so dense with shrubbery and trees, it would be very difficult to find a dead body there. And this is why Ivan left the bodies at the crime scene because he thought that they'd never be found. So now we're gonna talk about Ivan Milat's attacks and killings. So trigger warning, we're gonna be talking about brutal rapes and murders. So we're going to start in 1989 when Ivan was 45 years old. He was living in Eagle Vale with his sister Shirley and he was working on the roads with the New South Wales Roads and Traffic Authority. So on the 30th of December 1989, Deborah Everest and James Gibson, who were both 19 years old, they disappeared while traveling from Sydney to Albury, which is on the New South Wales-Victorian border. So Deborah and James were friends from Melbourne, so they were the Australians that I mentioned earlier. They had traveled to Sydney to go to a festival called Confest in Albury. Now, I've never heard of Confest. Um, I've heard of DEF CON, but I obviously had to Google it because I didn't know what Confest was. And Confest is an alternative bush campout festival. It's held annually in different locations around the southeastern states of Australia 
on the Easter long weekend. Now the festival apparently does workshops including yoga, tai chi, meditation, arts and music. So that wasn't what I was picturing when I read festival. Um, I was thinking like doof doof, you know what I mean? But no, that's where they were heading to. And sadly they never arrived and they were last seen checking out of their hotel in Surrey Hills. So unfortunately there were no witnesses and absolutely no sign of where they could have gone. So Deborah and James were reported as missing about two weeks later on the 15th of January 1990 by both of their families. But four years later on the 5th of October 1993, Deborah and James's bodies were recovered in Belangelo State Forest. Their remains were actually found by a local man when he was walking through the forest where he had discovered skull and bones and he immediately called the police. So the police arrived and they started to investigate and they first found the remains of Deborah Everest. Deborah's body indicated that she was stabbed, tortured, and beaten to death. There were knife marks on her forehead, and there was a large stab wound to her back. So Deborah's autopsy revealed that her jaw was completely smashed in, and her skull was fractured in two places, indicating that she had suffered blunt force injury to the head and was beaten to death. When the police conducted a search of the crime scene, that's when they found the remains of a second victim 22 meters away. And these were the remains of James Gibson. So James's body showed signs that he was sexually assaulted and stabbed to death. He had been hogtied with a pair of tights and the zipper of his jeans was found completely open, but the top button of his jeans was done up. So this indicated to police that he was likely sexually assaulted. So James's autopsy revealed that he was stabbed eight times. He was stabbed multiple times in his chest and back. It was found that the stab wounds to his chest had punctured his heart and lungs. And it was found that one of the stab wounds to his back was really large and it actually had cut through his upper spine and had completely severed his spinal cord, which would have caused paralysis. It was theorized by police that the back stab wounds to both Deborah and James would have immediately paralyzed them, but not killing them, which would then allow for the killer to do whatever he wanted and continue his attack while his victims would lay there helpless. And that is terrifying. About one month later, on the 25th of January, 1990, Paul Onions, who was a 26-year-old traveler from the UK, was looking to hitch a ride from Sydney to Melbourne on the Hume Highway in Liverpool. So around 9.30am, Paul went into a shop off the Hume Highway to buy a drink, and when he walked out of the shop, that's when he passed Ivan Malat. So Ivan noticed Paul, and he had approached him and asked him if he needed a lift somewhere. And Paul was like, yeah, I'm heading to Melbourne. And Ivan was like, gee, me too. So they both got into Ivan's white Toyota Land Cruiser and started to drive along the Hume Highway towards air quotes, Melbourne. Now, Paul is really important to this story because he survived. So Paul said that during the drive, Ivan was super friendly at first. He was making nice small talk about the weather in Sydney and asking Paul where he's from and they were talking about the cricket. But then Ivan started to make racist remarks and some of the shit he was saying was just batshit crazy. So Paul was thinking to himself, oh my God, I'm stuck with a fucking nutter. 
great. And then Paul started to notice that Ivan was acting more strangely. And what he noticed was that Ivan kept looking in the rear view mirror and was like looking at the cars behind him. So Paul was like, um, is everything okay? And Ivan was like, nah, nah, it's all good. You know, we're just heading into a spot where we're going to lose reception. Don't worry. We're just going to lose the radio. No worries. So then Ivan told Paul that he just needed to pull over for a sec. He said he needed to get cassette tapes so that they could listen to some music. So Ivan pulled the car over, which by the way, was 400 meters off the turnoff for Belanglo State Forest. So that's really close by. So as Ivan was getting out of the vehicle, Paul noticed a couple of things that just made him think something is not right. So first, he noticed that there were actually cassette tapes sitting in the front console. Then he noticed rope. So Paul was fucking freaking out and he automatically just got out of the car. And Ivan was like, hey, what are you doing? Get back in the car. And Paul, well, he was trying to play it cool. And he was like, oh, you know, I'm just getting some air. I'm just stretching my legs. And Ivan was like, well, look, I'm just getting these tapes. It's not a big deal. I'll be like a second. Get back in. They're just underneath the seat. So Paul got back in the passenger seat. He was a little bit freaked out, didn't really know where this was going. And he just started to put his seatbelt back on. And that's when Ivan said, just wait. I'm going to try underneath the seat again to get these tapes. And Paul was thinking, this is freaking weird. But before he could do anything, that's when Ivan pulled out a gun from underneath the driver's seat and pointed right in Paul's face and said, do you know what this is? Paul was like, fuck. And he jumped out of the car and booked it. He was just running down the Hume Highway as fast as he could in like a zigzag pattern while Ivan was shooting at him. Thankfully, Paul didn't get hit and Paul managed to run in front of an oncoming vehicle who luckily stopped for him and they helped him. So shout out to Joanne Berry and the kids. Way to go, Joanne. So Paul jumped into Joanne's car and she took him to the police station in Barrel, where Paul told the police the entire incident and they made an official report, but nothing came of it. So Paul ended up flying back to the UK. But Let's not forget Paul, okay, because he ends up playing a critical role in the eventual capture, arrest, and conviction of Ivan Milat in 1994. But unfortunately, this incident, like I said, happened in 1990. So Ivan was able to continue his violent, murderous rampage. And sadly, there would be many more victims after this incident. So one year after the attack on Paul Onions, on the 20th of January, 1991, Simone Loretta Schmidl, who is a 21-year-old traveler from Germany, disappeared while traveling from Sydney to Melbourne. Simone was described as sociable, adventurous, and sympathetic. And Simone had been traveling around Australia with her German-Australian friend, Jeanette Moller, and they recently got back from traveling around Australia and New Zealand for several weeks, where they were mostly traveling by hitchhiking with truck drivers. But on the 20th of January, Simone decided to venture out on her own. At 8am, Simone left the Guildford home where she had been staying with Jeanette to travel by bus 15 kilometres to the Hume Highway in Liverpool. And then from there, she was going to hitchhike to Melbourne. So she was actually supposed to meet her mother at the airport in Melbourne, who was flying in from Germany and they were going to do a camping trip together. So Simone said goodbye to her friend Jeanette that morning and she was never heard from again. And sadly, when Simone's mother, Erwinia, 
arrived at the airport and saw that her daughter wasn't there. She went to the information desk at the airport and then she was taken to the police station where she had reported her daughter is missing. And it's really sad, but Simone's mother actually stayed in Australia for six weeks to look for her daughter, um, just hoping that Simone would show up. But sadly, she never did. So her mother returned back to Germany and I couldn't even imagine her thought process for six weeks. Like that would have been a very hard time. And then to have to leave Australia and go back home and you don't have any answers and you don't know where your daughter is, that would have been very sad for her mom. Simone also had plans with her friend Jeanette to do a six-week camper van trip in Victoria together. And they were going to do this after she got back from the camping trip with her mom. And then the two girls were going to head back home to Germany together. And that sucks because it kind of sounds like this was her wrapping up her trip in Australia and then she was going to return back home to Germany. So witnesses came forward and they said that they saw Simone waiting on the Hume Highway in Kusula, which is near Liverpool, the day that she disappeared. The witnesses were able to correctly identify Simone because of the clothes that she was wearing, which was apparently super bright and she was also a very tall girl. But two years later, after her disappearance, Simone's body was recovered on the 1st of November 1993 in Belangelo State Forest. So Simone's body was found 40 meters away from a bushfire path and sadly, her parents had to find out about it on the news. Simone's body was found face down with her arms around her back and she was covered with leaves, ferns and twigs and the twigs were in an X configuration. Simone's body showed signs that she had been raped and stabbed to death. Simone was stabbed eight times. Two of the stab wounds to her back had actually severed her spinal cord twice. The other stab wounds to her chest had actually punctured her lungs and heart. Simone's body was still partially dressed with her shirt and bra pushed up around her neck. Also, her shorts were completely undone. So this indicated to police that she was sexually assaulted. Her autopsy concluded that the stabbings to the back would have caused paralysis, just like James and Deborah, where Simone would have been stabbed in the back first, leaving her paralyzed and still alive, but completely helpless during the attack. A search of the crime scene recovered a makeshift fire pit, likely constructed by the killer. So this indicated to police that the killer had built a small campsite where he would spend some time at the crime scene, but it was undetermined whether the time was spent with the victim before or after the victim was deceased. About 11 months later, on the 26th of December, 1991, 21-year-old Gabor Neuerbauer and 20-year-old Anya Hapshid disappeared while traveling from Sydney to Darwin. Gabor and Anya were a couple from Germany and they were traveling around Australia together. They had actually been traveling in Indonesia before they landed in Australia and they had plans to hitch south to Adelaide and then they were going to head north to Darwin and then from there they were going to fly back home. But Gabor and Anya were last seen leaving the backpackers in at King's Cross the day after Christmas on Boxing Day. On the 4th of November 1993, Gabor and Anya's bodies were recovered under large logs near a fire trail in Belangelo State Forest. Their bodies were found in shallow graves about 50 meters apart from each other. Their bodies were also approximately one kilometer away from where Simone Schmidl's body was recovered. So the first body that was recovered was Gabor's and Gabor's body showed signs that he had been gagged, strangled, sexually assaulted, stabbed and shot to death. 
Gabor's jeans were completely unzipped. Um, and again, the top button of the jeans was done up just like James Gibson's. So this indicated to police that he was likely sexually assaulted. And Gabor's autopsy revealed that he had been shot six times in the head. His neck was also broken and his spine was completely severed from a stab wound to the back. The police then discovered Anya's body close by and they found that she had been decapitated. So the police found a bondage device about 200 meters away from her body, which indicated that she was likely tied up during the attack. Anya's autopsy revealed that her head had been severed by a machete or a long sword likely when she was alive. But unfortunately, after extensive searches of the site, Anya's skull has never been recovered. When the police searched the crime scene, they found Indonesian flight tickets near the bodies and a makeshift campsite about 200 meters away from the bodies and it was littered. There were several bottles and cans that had been completely shot to pieces, which indicated to police that the killer had spent some time at the crime scene and was shooting these cans and bottles for target practice. So the police recovered the bullets from Gabor's body and also from the campsite, which would later be a perfect perfect match to bullets found at the next crime scene. About four months later, on the 18th of April, 1992, Caroline Clark, who was 21 years old, and Joanne Walters, who was 22 years old, disappeared from the Hume Highway in Liverpool. So both Caroline and Joanne were British travellers and they had met at a King's Cross hostel and they both decided to do farm work together. So Caroline was from Northumberland in England and Joanne was from South Wales. So they planned to travel from Sydney to Melbourne where they could do fruit picking in Victoria and just earn some money while they were going to travel around Australia together. So they actually wrote to their families back in the UK and they said that they wanted to see the Northern Territory, Uluru, and parts of the Western Australian desert. So that morning on the 18th of April, Caroline and Joanne left King's Cross and headed to Liverpool to hitchhike. But Caroline and Joanne were never heard from again after leaving the hostel. So two weeks later, Joanne's parents started to get a little bit worried because they hadn't heard from their daughter and this was highly unusual. So Joanne's parents waited two more weeks and after still not hearing from their daughter, they booked a flight to Sydney and they reported her as missing to police in May 1992. But five months after Caroline and Joanne's disappearance, Caroline and Joanne's bodies were recovered in the Belangelo State Forest on the 19th of September 1992. Joanne's body was actually discovered by two runners who were running on a track in Belangelo State Forest near an area of the forest known as Executioner's Drop. So when they came across the remains, they immediately called the police. And when the police came to investigate, that's when they found the remains of Joanne Walters. So Joanne's body was found under a rock below a campsite and her body was covered in branches. Joanne's body indicated that she had been gagged, raped, and stabbed to death. Joanne had been stabbed 14 times. She was stabbed four times in the chest, once in the neck, and nine times in the back. Her autopsy concluded that the two stabbings to the back were to her spine at the base of her neck, which would have immediately paralyzed her, but not killing her 
just like the other victims. So again, it was theorized that this knife wound would have paralyzed Joanne where the killer could do whatever he wanted and had complete control over Joanne during the attack. Joanne also had no defense wounds, which confirmed that she was completely helpless. Also, the stab wounds to her chest were so brutal that two of her ribs were completely severed. Her neck also had abrasions, which indicated that her killer likely held her neck backwards with a cloth, which further added to the control. Joanne's jeans were also unzipped, but the top button of the jeans was done up. So this indicated to police that she was partially stripped and raped. The way that Joanne's jeans was done up was the exact same way as previous victims. So it was being theorized by police that the killer had a pattern of sexually assaulting his victims, but would then quickly button up the jeans after the attack because he would always forget to zip up the jeans. And I don't agree with this theory because they're saying that he did this quickly. I don't think he was trying to be quick at all because he was spending time at the campsite with the victims. So if anything, the zippers were probably left undone in my opinion, because Ivan's stupid. I think Ivan probably thought that by doing up the top button of the jeans, it would look like nothing happened here. And I just think he was so stupid that he forgot to do up the zipper of the jeans. Because why would he be quick? He loves spending time with the victims and drawing out their deaths and spending time at the campsites. So there's really no indication that he was ever quick in doing anything. I just think he was dumb. So while conducting a search of the area, that's when police discovered a second body the next morning on the 20th of September. It was 30 meters away from Joanne's body and these were the remains of Caroline Clark. Caroline's body showed signs that she had been stabbed and shot to death. Caroline was stabbed once in the upper back and shot 10 times in the head, both to the back and sides of her head, and there were four exit wounds of the bullets which had completely shattered the front of her face and jaw. Her head was also wrapped up in a jumper which indicated that she was likely blindfolded during the shootings. And the police later did a reenactment at the scene and it showed that the gunshot wounds to Caroline's head were consistent with having been fired from three different directions. But all 10 fire casings were found in the exact same spot next to each other. So it was theorized by police that the killer had stood in the same spot when he was firing the gun, but was actually moving Caroline's head around. Like it was target practice after she was dead. Caroline's autopsy also indicated that the stab wound to her back was actually to her spine, which was identical to the stab wound on Joanne's body and the other previous victims. So it was again theorized that the stab wounds to the back of both Joanne and Caroline would also cause paralysis and the killer was able to have complete control over the attack. Also, when the police searched the area, they found another makeshift fire pit campsite and they also found those 10 fired casings that I mentioned that were next to Caroline's body. So during Caroline's autopsy, four complete 22 caliber bullets were found inside of her skull. The bullets were extracted and preserved for forensic analysis and they also had the 10 fired casings from the campsite which were also 22 caliber casings. So the bullets and the casings gave police physical evidence that would allow them to identify the weapon used and they could also compare it to casings and bullets found at other crime scenes. So what the police did was that they got all 
the recovered bullets and all the casings and ran ballistics tests. And then they compared these tests to a manufacturer's specification list. And then from there, they were able to come to the conclusion that only one firearm could have been used. And this was a Ruger model 1022, which is a 22 caliber rifle. And I don't know guns, okay? I have no idea, so I had to Google it. And just to give you a description of what this gun looks like, it looks like your typical hunting gun in movies. It's very long and it's brown and it has these like black pieces. Just think of the hunter guy in Jumanji, you know, just your typical hunting rifle. But despite all the physical evidence found and the bodies being recovered, the police had absolutely no leads for a suspect. And this meant that all these cases that I've talked about went cold. So the police reached out to a forensic psychiatrist and his name is Dr. Rod Milton and they went to him for assistance and they wanted to get an idea on a psychological standpoint as to what type of person could be capable for these murders. So Dr. Milton came up with a profile of this specific serial killer and he concluded that the killer was likely in his mid-30s, had a history of aggression, was familiar with the surrounding terrain where he would have felt secure and in complete control and was motivated and thrilled by the pleasure of inflicting pain. So this is what we would call the thrill-oriented hedonistic serial killer, which we discussed in previous episodes. So this type of killer is motivated by the need for excitement that is brought on by the killing. So they usually draw out the process because this is where they get the most pleasure from rather than the actual kill itself. And I think he would also fit into the category of the control-oriented hedonistic serial killer because this is the type of killer who receives gratification from having power over the victims and they really enjoy the thrill of deciding whether the victim will live or die and how and when and they also receive gratification from the attention that they receive from the victim during the killing. So now we're going to get into a good part of the story because I feel like this is really interesting this part and this is how Ivan Milat was caught. So by 1994, everyone in Australia knew about the decomposing bodies in Belangelo State Forest and that a serial killer was on the loose. So there's a lot of pressure from the media and the community and it became global news. So Paul Onions, remember him, the one who got away? Well, he's back. So while Paul was back living in the UK, he saw what was happening in Australia on the news and he remembered that his attack was close to the Belangelo State Forest. So he contacted the Australian embassy and told him his story of what happened to him while he was in Australia. And then the Australian police contacted Paul and he was flown out to Sydney. So the police located Paul's original statement from the attack that occurred four years earlier and then Paul was provided with a book of mug shots and that's when Paul identified Ivan Milat straight away. So once Paul identified Ivan Milat, the police were able to get search warrants to search all of the Milat properties. So remember there's 14 kids in the family there's a lot of search warrants going on. So they were able to obtain search warrants to search Ivan's home, his mother's home, and his brother's homes. And this led to a huge raid on the Malat family, and it was a big deal. So the raid took place on the morning of the 22nd of May, 1994, and it was a massive operation. So the raid involved over 300 officers, a tactical operations unit, 
dog squads and heavily armed police. And it was all over the news. The media was actually contacted beforehand to hold off on covering the raid because they didn't want any leaks. But once the raid had been carried out, the media were able to report what went down and it was crazy. So the raid ended up being very successful. So what happened was the police first called Ivan at his home at 6am that morning before the raid and told him to surrender. And Ivan was like, nah, fuck ya. But then after a little negotiating, Ivan did eventually agree and he came out of his house and once he walked out, he was immediately arrested. So when he was arrested, he was being charged for the attempted murder of Paul Onions because at this time, it was the only offense that the police were able to charge him with. But Ivan was the number one suspect for the murders at Belangelo State Forest. But they just needed the physical evidence to tie him to the murders. So the police then raided all of the Malat properties and they were able to recover a huge amount of physical evidence and it was insane. I'm going to list all the evidence because I find it really interesting. But basically, they found multiple items of personal property that belonged to the victims. So when the police searched Ivan Malat's home in Eagle Vale, they found sleeping bags that belonged to Deborah Everest and Simone Schmidl in one of the bedrooms. They found camping equipment, including tents, tent frames, mats, and compression bands, which are used for strapping down camping gear, that belonged to the victims in Ivan's garage. In Ivan's kitchen, they found a camera, a cooking set, a portable stove, and cups that belonged to Simone Schmidl. They also found New Zealand and Indonesian currency in the bedside table of Ivan's bedroom, which was likely from the victims who had been traveling. So for example, Simone Schmidl, she was actually traveling around New Zealand, remember, with her friend Jeanette and Gabor and Anya they were actually found with a discarded plane ticket from Indonesia because they were actually in Indonesia before they came to Australia. This next piece of evidence is actually quite infamous. So the police found a green water bottle that was all scratched out on the front. And when police ran the bottle for analysis, they saw that behind the scratch marks, the bottle actually had the word Simi carved into it. So it was Simone Schmidl's fucking water bottle. So Ivan had scratched out her name and kept her water bottle, which is so weird because it's not just like some sick little memento where you're keeping all the little trinkets. He scratched it out on purpose, likely to reuse it. The police also found rope, duct tape, and plastic cable ties, which were also found at the crime scenes of Gabor and Anya's bodies. They also found a map of the Belangelo State Forest. They also found various knives and a lot of guns. The police found guns literally everywhere. There were guns found in the hallway cupboard, in the garage, under the washing machine, and in his car. But most importantly, they found parts of a disassembled 22 caliber Ruger rifle that was stashed in the roof outside of the house. So parts of the rifle were actually inside a cavity 
between the inner wall of the house and the outside brick wall on top of the garage. And this matched the weapon used on the victims. When the police searched Ivan's mother's home in Guildford, remember Margaret? The police found a long sword inside of a locked cupboard and it was likely that this was the sword that was used to decapitate one of his victims. They also found multiple guns. Um, one of the guns had Ivan engraved on it and they also recovered personal property that belonged to the victims. So they found a shirt that belonged to Simone Schmidl and another shirt that belonged to Paul Onions. They also found a piece of a gag that was used on Joel Walters. When they searched Richard Malat's home in Hilltop, they found a lot of camping gear that belonged to the victims, including a sleeping bag, a bedroll, a blue tent, which all belonged to Caroline Clark. They found a blue sleeping bag that belonged to Joanne Walters. They also searched Richard Malat's car and they found rope that was similar to the rope found near Gabor's body. They found three rifles, a shotgun, and a crossbow. So Richard Malat was subsequently charged and convicted of firearm offenses. When the police searched Walter Malat's home in Hilltop, the police found a bag owned by Simone Schmidl and a lot of weapons. The amount of guns that they found at Walter's was actually insane. And I won't list all the guns, but just to give you an idea, they found 250 kilos of ammunition, which is crazy. And they they also found 400 grams of weed. So whoopsie on that one, Walter. He was subsequently charged and convicted with drug and firearm offenses. When they searched William Malat's home in Bargo, they recovered a family album of the Malats, which had photographs of the Malat family members using the camping equipment owned by the backpacker victims. The police also searched a property that previously belonged to Alex Malat in Buxton and the police excavated the property where they discovered a homemade shooting range and they recovered hundreds of spent bullets which they sent for ballistics and when the test came back from the bullets they were a perfect match to all the bullets found at the sites of where Gabor and Caroline's bodies were recovered. So now we're going to talk about Ivan Malat's trial. So when Ivan was first arrested he was taken into custody for questioning but Ivan was very uncooperative and very difficult with police but he was taken to Maitland jail where he was awaiting the attempted murder trial for Paul Onions but during this time the police were reviewing all of the evidence and once the ballistics evidence matched the weapon that was found on his property Ivan Malat was charged with seven counts of murder each count for each one of his victims. So before Ivan went to trial for the murder charges, guess who he called? James Marsden. Yes. Do you remember him? The criminal defense lawyer who got him off the sexual assault charges in the 70s? Well, he's back, but not for long. James, he advised Ivan to plead guilty to all of the charges and Ivan was fucking pissed off. So he fired James's ass and he said that he'd rather represent himself. They're all the same, aren't they? <laughs> so at this time, Ivan's trial was set down for June 1995. But after this shit show that went down with Ivan's defense counsel, Ivan then tried to get legal aid and it was so messy. The trial was constantly delayed. But finally, on the 26th of March, 1996, 
Ivan's trial commenced in the Supreme Court of New South Wales. I actually watched this documentary and there's this footage of Malat sitting in the paddy wagon that's driving off from the courthouse and it's so funny because you can't see him or anything but all you can hear is his voice and he's yelling out to reporters, it's all shit mate, I didn't kill no one mate. Oh my god, it fucking made me laugh. <laughs> so the trial commenced in March 1996 and Ivan entered into a plea of not guilty with a new defense counsel and this trial went on for 15 weeks. The prosecution case alone took 12 weeks to present and that's a really long time but it's because they had a lot of evidence. So the prosecution called Paul Onions as the first witness to give testimony and then they called the family members of the victims to give testimony and then they presented hundreds of exhibits. They presented exhibits of all the personal property of the victims that was recovered during the Malat raid, uh, exhibits of crime scene photos, and they also had expert witness testimony. The court also allowed for a view, which is basically when the jury is allowed to go and visit the crime scene. So they basically went on an excursion to the Belangelo State Forest, which would have been creepy as fuck. So when the prosecution rested, the defense counsel presented their defense, and they first called Ivan Malat to the stand and it did not go down well at all. So when Ivan got in the witness box, he was described as arrogant, egocentric, and he denied any involvement in the killings. During cross-examination, Ivan did really poorly, and apparently he made a terrible impression on the jury. The prosecutor said that Ivan had, quote, incredible arrogance and unbelievable self-confidence, end quote. So the defense's main argument was essentially that Ivan didn't commit the murders at all, and that the circumstantial evidence of having the victim's belongings in his house wasn't enough to find him guilty. So they argued that it was other members of the Malat family who had set up Ivan. So the defense made the argument that the murders were committed by either Richard or Walter Malat and basically this argument sucked um, because there was absolutely no evidence that allowed for these implications to cause any reasonable doubt to the prosecution case. So after Ivan's testimony, that's when the defense called Ivan's girlfriend to give evidence of how great Ivan is. And this part of the trial is actually a really good part. So the prosecutor was very prepared for this moment. And when Ivan's girlfriend got in the box, I think her name is um, Chandelier. Uh, Chandler, Chandler, I don't know. I'm not too sure. I couldn't really look up the pronunciation, but we'll just call her Shalinda. <laughs> so Shalinda was giving evidence for the defense and then it came time for her cross-examination. So the prosecutor, like I said, he was very prepared and he pulled out two photographs. The first photograph was of Shalinda at the beach wearing a jersey that belonged to Caroline Clark. Then he pulled out the second photo, which was a photo of Caroline Clark wearing the same jersey. Everyone in the courtroom gasped. It was one of those like courtroom drama moments and Ivan and his defense counsel were probably thinking, uh-oh. <laughs> when Shalinda was questioned about this photo, she said that Ivan had gifted her the jersey and that he had actually taken the photo of her wearing it. So this made him look really freaking guilty. And there was also no doubt, by the way, that both girls just happened to be wearing the same jersey because the prosecutor actually explained that this jersey was only manufactured in the 
UK. And the photo of Shalinda was dated 1992. And this was the same year that Caroline went missing. So if you remember, she was murdered in April 1992. So on the 27th of July, 1996, after three days of deliberation, the jury returned a verdict of guilty on all charges. So Ivan Milat was found guilty of seven counts of murder and one count of attempted murder. So he was sentenced to six years imprisonment for the attempted murder of Paul Onions and seven life sentences for each of the murders to be served consecutively. And by the way, Ivan was 51 years old at the time. When asked if he had any comments to add, Ivan Milat stood up in the courtroom and protested his innocence. So Ivan was taken to Maitland Prison where he was serving his time, but about one year later in May 1997, Ivan was found out for planning a jailbreak. So they ended up transferring him to maximum security at Goulburn Prison. Now I'm going to have to mention this because it is widely contested, but some people out there think, and even some police and court officials, they think that Ivan did not act alone. They think there was an accomplice to the murders. Maybe it was his sister Shirley, where unsuspecting travelers would trust a couple. Or maybe it was one of his brothers who was waiting in the forest and could assist with controlling the victims. But look, I'm going to refute that real quick. So the argument that it was impossible for Ivan as one person to control two victims at the same time can be completely rebutted when you think about what happened in 1971. So in 1971, when he abducted those two women and raped them at knife point, Ivan acted completely alone. He did this all by himself. He was able to control two people at the same time by asserting dominance and violence on people. So Ivan was the only person in that incident. He was the only person charged for that incident. And the girls testified that he was their only attacker. So Ivan Milat is more than capable of controlling two victims at once. And if you look at the evidence, Ivan had a pattern of paralyzing his victims. He would do this first to control the entire attack. So of course he could assert control over more than one person at once. But I do think some of Ivan's brothers are sus. I mean, I just think they probably knew what was going on, but never questioned him about it. And they just did what they always would do, which was to turn a blind eye. I mean, they had all that shit in their house as if they wouldn't question that. And also Clive Small, he was the leading police detective in the Malak case. He believes that Ivan acted alone. And I agree. Now let's talk about Ivan protesting his innocence because Ivan defended his innocence until the day that he died and his antics in jail are infamous. So Ivan used to go on hunger strikes in jail and he would refuse to eat and he would starve himself for days. And on one of his hunger strikes, Ivan didn't eat for nine days and he lost 15 kilos to try to get a PlayStation. So um, obviously they were like, no. <laughs> Ivan would also self-harm. So yeah, sorry, trigger warning. But there were multiple incidences where Ivan would cut himself and swallow razor blades, staples and other metal objects. And sometimes he faked his own death. But most notably, one time Ivan cut off his pinky finger with a plastic knife and tried to send it to the high court. Like what a fucking nut. <laughs> so basically he pulled these antics to have appeals heard. So I don't know about the pinky finger incident because I don't think that's the way Ivan, but he tried to appeal his conviction and sentence multiple times. So the first time he tried appealing to the New South Wales Criminal Court of Appeal in February, 1998, 
but it was dismissed. And then he appealed to the High Court in May 2004, but it was dismissed again. And then he sought leave to have inquiry into his convictions in December 2006, but again, it was dismissed. And his last appeal was in 2011, which was dismissed. So let's talk about his death. So on the 13th of May 2019, Ivan Milat was taken from Goulburn Supermax Prison to Prince of Wales Hospital in Sydney, where he underwent tests for lumps found in his throat and stomach. Ivan was subsequently diagnosed with terminal esophageal and stomach cancer. And that's a shame. He was then discharged from hospital after getting some treatment and he was transferred to Long Bay Correctional Centre. And you know what they say about Long Bay? Long Bay, long stay. (laughs) So not long after, on the 27th of October 2019, Ivan Milat died at the age of 71 at Long Bay Correctional Center inside the jail hospital wing. So that's it for him. Bye-bye, Ivan. Bye-bye. Everyone's really happy when Milat died. Um, I remember that I was. <laughs> I actually remember the photo that was circulating at the time where he was being transported in a wheelchair and he was being transported between hospital and jail. And I remember that everyone was really pissed at this as well because they were like, he doesn't deserve to leave and get hospital treatment. But anyway, he ended up dying. And um, Um, The New South Wales Corrections Minister, Anthony Roberts, he said in a press conference, quote, he can rot in hell now where he belongs, end quote. And well said, sir. So where's Ivan's body? Well, he was cremated and his ashes were scattered at Wollongong Beach. So that's it, everyone. Ivan Malat. What a terrible man. He was a terrible man that did terrible things. I think he was pure evil and did shit things throughout his whole life. And the way that he murdered his victims was so brutal and savage. And I think in this case, the death penalty would also be appropriate. Sorry, I'm just going to say it. I think Ivan definitely deserves to be dragged through the streets of Liverpool, tied to the back of a horse. Ivan Milat was definitely a narcissistic serial killer who completely blinded the people around him and manipulated his victims. He used his charm and charismatic personality to lure his victims and make them trust him and he still has his family members manipulated to this day. Ivan Milat was just your typical abusive piece of shit. He had a huge ego, he thought he was above the law and in complete control all the time and that's why he never confessed. It was like a control thing for sure. Anyway, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed listening to one of our own serial killers and get ready for the next one. Bye-bye.